This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for March 30th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, today I'd like to talk about two very different studies, one about vaccines and one about therapies that we published this week. The press has been focusing recently on the use of vaccines in very young children, but today we have a study with real-world data on older children and adolescents a group that's been eligible for vaccination since May for adolescents and since October for children older than five. That's given us the opportunity to collect effectiveness data, including during the recent wave of infections caused largely by the Omicron strain. So how was this vaccine study performed? Steve, this was a U.S. study that was performed between July of 2021 and mid-February of this year and enrolled patients and controls from 23 different states. It was designed as a case control test negative design which is the type of trial design we've commonly seen used to measure vaccine effectiveness. Because of the timing of authorization, the investigators were able to determine effectiveness over time, meaning over several months in the adolescent population. But because of short follow-up, they really were only able to look at those aged 5 to 11 during the Omicron period. They used active surveillance to identify individuals who were hospitalized with an appropriate clinical syndrome and had a positive PCR test, and matched them using a variety of criteria to those who were hospitalized with or without compatible symptoms, but with a negative PCR test. All of the included participants received BNT162B2, the only vaccine authorized in this age group. The investigators determined vaccination status by either documentation or parent reports. Fully vaccinated participants were those who'd received a second dose of vaccine at least two weeks before enrollment. And then what did the investigators find? Altogether, they ended up including more than 900 case patients and more than 1,300 controls. Although the minority were vaccinated in either the case or control populations, in both the 12 to 18 year age group and the 5 to 11 year age group, there were significantly more vaccinated individuals in the control groups. Altogether, in the 12 to 18 year old age group, the vaccine was more than 90% effective at preventing hospitalization during the period in which Delta was a predominant circulating strain but fell to a little more than 40% during the Omicron period. In the 5 to 11-year-old age group, effectiveness was almost 70%, all measured during Omicron. In the older age group, the vaccine had high levels of protection against critical illness, both during Delta and Omicron. Altogether, I'd say that this news is pretty consistent with what we know in adults. Vaccines are best at protecting against variants that are most similar to the vaccine strain, like the Delta variant, and not as good against less similar strains like Omicron. And they work best against more severe illness. During the Omicron period, vaccines were much less able to protect against infection and symptoms, though they do seem to retain considerable activity against critical disease. Eric, I agree that these data are quite reassuring and consistent with the clinical trial data. And as you point out, vaccines in general, if not always, are more effective against preventing severe illness than mild illness. And these data are consistent with those findings and thus very reassuring that in the real world setting, these vaccines behave as we would expect. What's also important, and I think nuanced in these data that you noted, is the time from vaccination in relation to protection and how best to understand the protection against Omicron in the older kids versus the younger kids when the timing of vaccination was also differential. The findings are still consistent that vaccination 
prevents illness with the different variants. But whether or not more recent vaccination or higher titer has a beneficial effect or an important beneficial effect, I still think needs to be elucidated. But that is a nuanced detail. The key finding that vaccinating our children protects them from illness, a particularly severe illness, is quite clear. Lindsay, I think many people have pointed out that over time, the effectiveness against both infection and to some extent severe illness wanes. And that correlates with a general concept that high titers of antibody are required to resist infection, but not required for protection against disease severity. This is a correlation. We don't know if that's true, but it is certainly true that vaccines are likely to produce high titers close to the time of vaccination or close to the time of boosting, and that those levels will decline over time. But of course, as you point out, there's the mismatch of strains too. So not only do you see waning immunity, but you see that the immune response that's elicited, whether that's antibody or cell-mediated immunity, is less effective against the less related viruses. So I think, Eric, in part, what may be related to the biology has to do with where we're exposed to the pathogen of the virus and what is the resident immunity. We acquire respiratory viruses in our respiratory tract, particularly the nares. And what immunity is present at the time of exposure, therefore limiting infection, which is different than what may be present systemically limiting disease severity. So again, I think the biology and what we're seeing are all consistent. Lots of work needs to be done to refine our understanding. But overall, what we're seeing makes a lot of sense scientifically and clinically. Lindsay, as the parent of children in this age group, how do you evaluate these data and how do you make a decision about whether to vaccinate? So Steve, it's always a challenging question as we think about our own health and the health of our loved ones. But in the setting where we think about our children, but I would say when we think about ourselves and our adult relatives and our parents and grandparents, how we weigh side effects versus illness. And I think the side effects that we've seen from vaccination, even in children, is extremely rare. And so in my own reflection on this, the risk of a one in a million or very rare side effect, be it the myocarditis or the anaphylaxis or some of these considerations, which are still hard to understand given their rarity, versus the clear benefit of protecting against illness, makes it a very easy decision. And you know, in our family, we discussed it with our children, and there was no issue about being vaccinated given the overwhelming benefits versus the very, very rare risks. And when I asked my children this question, their responses were twofold. One said, I didn't want to get sick. And the other said, I didn't want to get my friends sick. And I think that reflects what the benefits of vaccines are for a highly transmissible illness and the ability to go to school, to play with their friends, to do the routine activities of being a teenager, I think is really important. And so it was not a difficult decision at all, despite the discomfort that one gets being vaccinated for a day or two. The benefits clearly outweigh any of the extremely small risks. I'd like to turn to our second study, this one about ivermectin as a therapy for COVID-19. 
Ivermectin has some in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2 and other viruses, and it's been used heavily by some and touted as an effective and relatively non-toxic agent. There have been many reported clinical trials with varying results, but few have been large enough or rigorous enough to draw consistent conclusions. In the trial we're looking at today, ivermectin was tested as part of a larger multi-agent platform trial. How did it work? The study was performed at multiple centers in Brazil. It included adults who presented for outpatient care who had symptoms consistent with COVID-19 for less than seven days and at least one risk factor for progression of disease. Those who had a positive rapid antigen test were eligible to participate. Participants received either ivermectin or placebo for a planned three-day course. The primary outcome was a composite of admission to a hospital or prolonged observation in an emergency setting. Because of hospital overcrowding, the outcome included referral to a tertiary care hospital, even if there was no admission. There were several secondary outcomes that included time to viral clearance and measures of disease severity. And then what were the results? The ivermectin portion of the study included 679 assigned to the therapy with an equal number assigned to placebo. The patients were relatively young with a median age of 49, and the vast majority were of mixed race. Altogether, 100 patients in the ivermectin group and 116 in the placebo group reached the composite endpoint, a difference that produced overlapping credible intervals in a Bayesian analysis. Secondary endpoints were also similar between the two groups and in pre-specified subgroups. Altogether, these results don't suggest that ivermectin has much effect in COVID-19 patients. Unfortunately, it joins a list of approved agents that have not proven to be effective for outpatient therapy. So Steve, having high quality RCT data is really important for us to understand if a therapy works or not. And this study is the largest in this space. So it allows us to have as clear as possible an understanding of if ivermectin provides any benefit which we see no evidence for in the primary outcome as well as intermediary outcomes. So this creates a context for us to better interpret the in vitro data and the observational data, which earlier in the pandemic suggested some benefit. And it's important for us to have these types of data to inform our clinical decision-making. So ivermectin is one of many agents for which there is plenty of negative data, but several of these drugs continue to be used. How can we help clinicians make good choices for their patients? This is a tough one because it's very difficult to prove a negative. All studies have a margin of error. And in a study like this one, we can't exclude some positive effect, although we can say that any effect would likely be very small. And it's always possible to say that changes in the study design, for example, different drug doses or different timing of administration might yield a positive result. But let's be realistic. When the evidence is negative, it becomes incumbent on advocates of a treatment to prove that it works using rigorous methods, not simply to suggest why it might not have worked under a particular circumstance. In many cases, treatments like ivermectin are being offered as an alternative to highly effective interventions like vaccination. This is not a reasonable choice. So I think these data show us the challenges of repurposed medications. Agents that are FDA approved to treat other infections or other diseases And then in vitro data suggest activity against this virus. These are important opportunities for us to discover active agents, but they're also fraught with the challenges of the limitations of in vitro assays and their ability to predict a beneficial effect against human disease. And as you point out, Eric, 
the data for ivermectin, including in the study we published today, show no evidence of benefit clinically and no evidence of benefit in vitro looking at viral clearance or other intermediary parameters. Thus, the data are pretty clear that there's no signal of activity, and we can contrast this to other treatments where we do see a clinical benefit in a properly conducted clinical trial, and we see evidence of more rapid viral clearance. So one needs to be very careful about working hard to find a reason why something might work when the clinical data consistently show no activity, because this creates a problem in the clinical arena for choosing the right therapy for your patient. If there are active treatments, it is better to use those agents than agents that we wish worked, but have no evidence that they work. So I see the real danger in repurposed drugs that don't work is that they confuse the early clinical treatment of our patients so we don't use therapies where we have strong evidence of meaningful clinical activity. It's a really good point, Lindsay. And I think times have changed, fortunately. Right now, we do have effective therapies for COVID-19. None of them are magic, but some of them are awfully good. And we now can say that we have something to offer people. In the days where there was very little to offer people, treatments like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, relatively non-toxic drugs, although we certainly saw cases of toxicity with both of these agents, you know, were very attractive. I think that they become less attractive as better therapies exist. We saw this back in the days of HIV when we had little to offer patients and there was a major move to go looking for alternative therapies, none of which really proved to be very useful. When effective agents came out, though, in the late 1990s, those alternatives pretty much fell by the wayside. So having something to offer patients really changes the dynamic. I do worry, though, about the idea of therapies replacing prevention. They don't. There's no question that a vaccine that prevents disease or prevents severe disease beats any therapy we have. So I don't think of these as alternatives. They're really just an adjunct to good prevention. So Eric, I think that you're absolutely right. There's a continuum of mitigation strategies against SARS-CoV-2. Prevention being the most important with vaccination, masking, avoiding crowding in environments with a high community infection pressure. I think those are things which should be adopted in all communities. For those individuals who have a breakthrough infection, then how we think about their treatment. Or for those individuals who are unable to mount an immune response because of a weakened immune system, what are the options? And there, we need to be very careful about hope interfering with science that informs the best clinical decision-making. And having high-quality data that informs us what does and does not work clinically is critically important to make those decisions on how to treat our patients who have a breakthrough infection. And these types of data that we're publishing today are really important, negative data, so that we are not distracted by a treatment that does not show benefit in the format used. 
However, the format used is a very good test of the question if it works. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.